He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Hey. <laughs> what an entrance, eh? Um, hi, my name is Lee, if I haven't met you before. I'm the lead pastor here at Established Church, and one of the things about Established Church is that we, we don't expect uh, that people necessarily come walking in here and gung-ho for Jesus. We hope that each week we're talking to people who are mature Christians and, and people who are completely skeptical about Christianity. But because we're convinced that one of the most important things uh, to establish in life is life with Jesus, one of the things that we do is we read the Bible together and hopefully, even just by virtue of the fact that we have it up on the screen, on your uh, handout, that we want you to get that we are a group of people who are on about the Bible. And there's one simple reason for that. It's just simply that this is the core way that we get to know Jesus. This is the core way that we get to know who God is. So each week we preach through the Bible and we're just kicking off um, from a book of Mark and it's one of the earliest witnesses of who Jesus was. But we hope that you'll engage with us on questions. We are more than just what happens on a Sunday. I, I don't know what your view of church has been before now, but church isn't just about getting a bunch of people together on a Sunday. We're also one about community. We're also on about seeing how we can connect um, with the community around us as well. So ask the people that are on the team and ask the people that are around you uh, what it's like here at Established Church, what their experience has been like uh, for the last number of weeks and, and months, and you'll get a bit of an idea of what it's like. But you can see we've got wires left lying around, all of this kind of stuff. We've done this purposely, kind of, um, so that you guys see that that part of being part of a established church is actually, and we get mucked in together, and to see uh, this church growing together. So if you're thinking about joining a established church, then and we'd love for you to do that. Now I want to pray before we look at this passage, and um, why don't you pray with me? And Father God, I just um, pray and ask that you will open up our hearts wherever it is that we are at in exploring who you are. We ask, Father, that you will help us to engage with your word today. You help us to have ears to hear and hearts to um, really genuinely work out who you are. If we're Christians, Lord, I pray that you will help us to be um, invigorated and inspired by what we hear. And if we're not, Lord, I pray that you will um, challenge um, people as well, Father. In your name, amen. Last week we kicked off uh, our series, The Jesus Revolution, and we asked simply just one question. Who is Jesus? And what we said was that it was really important for us to get Jesus' identity right. That, that actually getting Jesus' identity right would shape the way that we either responded to him or not. You see, it doesn't matter whether or not you reject Jesus today or accept him on one hand. What we want to challenge you to do is think about who Jesus is. <coughs> Are you accepting him or rejecting him based on his real identity or just something that 
you maybe picked up when you were at school, something that you read about in a book, something that maybe uh, you read about on the internet. Because you see, it's really hard to work out who this Jesus character really is, isn't it? Because there's lots and lots and lots of different ideas and concepts about who he is. You know, he appears in South Park pilot episode as somebody who fights with the Santa Claus for the real meaning of Christmas. And he's pictured as holding sheep. And sometimes you can see pictures of him holding dinosaurs as well, which is just really weird. People think he's a revolutionary leader, a great teacher. Some people think he never existed at all. Yet others see that he was a man of compassion. A man who cared for the sick, for the poor and the needy. Someone that we should follow today in today's society, even if we don't think that he was God's son. There are lots and lots of different views of who Jesus is. But the one thing that I want to ask you today is who do you think Jesus is? Not what people around you think about Jesus, but what do you think? Now, I'm going to actually give you a couple of minutes to write something down in the booklet that you have. We're not going to ask you for your answer. We're not going to get you to show it to the person around you. I simply want to give you an opportunity to write down what it is that you think as an answer to that question. That could be that you completely don't know anything at all, and that's all right. It could be that you uh, were here last week and you heard me uh, saying some things about Jesus and you had something written down before. Maybe you can go back and revisit that. Does it need to change? Was it challenged? Was it affirmed a little bit? So I'm going to give you two minutes to write down an answer to that question. Who is Jesus? And then we'll come back in a second. Got it? Yep. I think we're all on holiday mode today. background music provided by sounds of the suburbs across the road. Um, <laughs> guys, keep on, keep on thinking about that. We're not going to ask you to hand those in at all, but, but here's what I want to challenge you with today. Are you willing to actually truly ask that question? Are you actually brave enough to have the answer to that question revolutionized? Are you willing to work out whether or not what you think about Jesus is actually built upon the real Jesus? That's what the Jesus revolution is all about. We're simply getting back to one of the earliest accounts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
in Mark's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel was written with great insight from one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter. And it was written within living memory of eyewitnesses of all of those events. And it's one of the most credible books, one of the most credible sources on the life of Jesus. That's been attested the whole way through history from both skeptical historians and people who are Christians. It hasn't yet been defunct. It hasn't yet been, you know, classed as a myth. Every time somebody comes to test out this book, they keep on coming up with that as a credible source for this person, Jesus. That's why we're looking at that today. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see that Jesus was a revolutionary man. We're going to see that Jesus was a revolutionary son. And he was also a revolutionary messiah. Are you with me? Revolutionary man, revolutionary son, and revolutionary messiah. Now I'm not sure what kind of um, person you are. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever really thought about this answer um, or engaged with the Bible in any way. And, and maybe you're sitting here today and you follow somebody like Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the great atheists and, and authors in the world. And, and he simply just says that Jesus never lived at all. That, that he just wasn't a man. He didn't exist. Or maybe like the, uh, the ABC journalist Michael Cathcar, if you know who he is, he was involved in an interview in 2012 with a guy named Salman Rushdie. And, and he, he said this, there's no doubt at all that Muhammad was a real person. Whereas Jesus is a person who at least ambiguous, is at least ambiguous in the question of whether or not he actually existed. Both questioning the claims that Jesus was actually a real person at all. Now I'm not sure if you're in that boat, I'm not sure if you're a Christian here and you've been engaging with that question, but if you hold that view, then I, I want to be kind of fairly upfront from the start. That is not the view of credible historians down through the ages. You see, credible historians, the whole way from the first people that actually looked at this person, Jesus, keep on coming up time and time again that he was a real man. In fact, Cathcart was challenged by two of Australians leading historians. I'm not massively into history, right? I, I study history, but I'm not massively into it. But two guys, or two, a lady and a man, Alana Hobbs and uh, a guy called Edwin Judge, they're, they're two of, of Australia's leading historians, and they challenged Cathcart on this after he had stated it in 2012. And here's what they said. While historical <laughs> and theological debates remain, about the actions and significance of this figure, all they're really saying is there in regards to whether or not he was the son of God, right? Which is what Christians believe. His fame as a teacher and his crucifixion under the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate may be described as historically certain. And they actually go on to suggest that there were very early sources for both Christians and skeptics that put this whole myth about Jesus not being a real man completely to one side. 
They said that these things prove that Jesus' existence is beyond reasonable doubt. Now we don't have time to go into all of the um, angles of that argument. If you want to engage with that more, we'll pop something up on Facebook this week. You can read some of those sources for yourself. But I just simply want to challenge you on this point that if you're in any way questioning that Jesus was a real person, you do that at the expense of going against some really credible historians the whole way down through the age. This is actually why Mark tells us here that Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. That's what he tells us in, in verse 9. He, he gives us historical markers because Mark is without a doubt that he's writing about a real person. He's actually talking about someone here who has flesh and bones, someone who would have pooed as a baby, right? And he would have spewed as an adult. He, he was a real guy. He had a job. He walked. He talked. He took rest from people. He had to go away from people because they drained him. He had limitations as a person. He showed compassion. He loved children. All of these things that if you read through Mark's gospel, he's trying to highlight for us and underline for us that Jesus was truly human. He was a real person. In fact, if you're not too familiar with Christianity, this is one of the core aspects of the Christian faith. Jesus was 100% man. Now, I'm purposely not showing you where all of those references are in the book of Mark. But because I'm Irish, I'm a little bit cheeky. And, and I want to encourage you to actually read it for yourself. It's 16 chapters. If you're like me and you really struggle to read, we'll put up a link at the end of the service and, and you can go on and you can listen to the book of Mark. You can listen to it in the car. You can listen to it as you're walking along the esplanade or doing whatever it is that you do. And even if you don't speak English, you can listen to it in another language. But I want to encourage you as we go through this series on the revolutionary Jesus, actually to read it for yourself. Don't take for granted what I'm saying from up the front. I actually challenge the claims that I'm making. Read it. Check it out. Because you see, Mark is saying here that Jesus is a revolutionary man. History was changed. Like, let's face it. Western history was changed because of this one man. 2,000 years on and we're still talking about this man. And millions and millions and millions of people have followed him over the last 2,000 years. If that's not revolutionary, then I don't know what is. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Even just on a human perspective. But there's two things that I want to point out to you now that we see in the book of Mark here. The first one is that Jesus is a revolutionary man who identifies with people. He actually identifies with real people. He's not a leader. He's not a person who hides away in an ivory tower. He actually is not someone who just goes to the local orphanage for a bit of PR work. He's actually someone who goes into the desert 
with the people. I don't know if you noticed or not when we were looking and hearing Kaiser read the Bible before, but you can have a look there and you can see that all of this is centering around this place, the desert or the wilderness. It's a place that would have been barren and dry. It wasn't just a geographical place, although it was a real place. But this was actually the place for the people of God, where they had went and they had wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness as they waited to go in to this place called the Promised Land. This was a place that in their story, as a group of people, would have cast up a lot of pain. This was a place where, metaphorically speaking, we all travel to at one point in time. You see, we know, don't we, when we look around the world that we live in, when we experience what it's like for us to walk into the wilderness, metaphorically speaking, we know what that's like, don't we? We know what it's like to be dry and barren. And here we see Jesus, along with the crowds that come from around Jerusalem and Galilee who are going out to this man, John the Baptist, we see Jesus walking out with them. He's identifying with them. He's identifying with the common person. See, Jesus isn't just someone who stands and shouts at people from a distance. He's not just someone who comes along and tells people ten things that they should do so that they can have life. And Jesus is a man who steps into our existence and who walks alongside us and identifies with us. That's the kind of things that Mark's trying to show us about this man, Jesus. Now, during the week, I, I was away at a few different conferences and things, and uh, we decided with my, my daughter and my son to go for a walk. And we went for a walk to see a glowworm cave, so we had to go in the dark. And then there had been a lot of rain and whatever around, so the, the ground was really, really treacherous. We, we were kind of in the wilderness of the Blue Mountains, so to speak. And, and as we were walking along, one of the kids slipped and fell. And in fact, he nearly went down the side of a waterfall. It was pretty scary. Um, he's alive, it's okay. <laughs> he didn't die. But as we were walking and as we went through um, the perils of walking on this path, my five-year-old daughter, Gracie, said to me, she looked up at me. I didn't really see her face. It was really dark. She said, Dad, I'm scared. I'm really scared. I didn't say to her, hey, just keep going. Just, you know, suck it up, princess. Just keep walking. It'll be okay. No, no, no. I actually took her by the hand. And I said, it's all right, Grace. I'm with you. It's all right. I'm walking here beside you. I'm shining the light ahead so that you know where to go. You see, Jesus is the kind of man who walks alongside people through the wilderness, through the wilderness of life, 
through the ups and the downs, whenever it is. I don't know about you, but that's what we want, isn't it? You know, we're kind of fair-dinkum Aussies, most of us. I'm a kind of Aussie blow-in, but, but, but as Australians, we want people who are fair-dinkum. We, we want people who will identify with us, leaders who will say what they mean and mean what they say, but also leaders that will come alongside us. Leaders that don't just hide behind the media, but actually are willing to get down and dirty in the rough and tumble of life. Mark's showing us here by virtue of the fact that Jesus walks into the desert, that he's willing to identify with us. Now, he's also wanting to show us something else here, and it's something far more radical than that. He actually wants to show us here that Jesus was also someone who was 100% sinless. See, he was 100% man, and we'll, we'll get more of that as we go through the book. But he's also 100% sinless. Now, I'm kind of taking this passage a little bit out of order today, but in your booklets, if you have a look down to verses 12 and 13, it says this. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the animals and the angels attended him. Now, it's not explicit here, right? But it's implied here that Jesus resisted temptation. He was tempted by Satan. He was tempted because he had um, the lands kind of just flown out for him. And he was told that if you just reject God, that you can be king of this whole world. If we look at Matthew's gospel... We see all the different temptations that were laid before Jesus, and we see that Jesus resisted that temptation. This is kind of Mark's way of showing us that Jesus didn't sin. He, he was actually a man who was 100% sinless. He never rejected God. Now that's pretty remarkable. See, I'm not sure what you think about in terms of your own life, but I know for me that I don't even meet my own standards half the time, let alone God's. And, and here we get this picture of Jesus as a man, but as someone who is completely sinless. That's what Mark's trying to pick up here. He didn't sin, he didn't reject God. And if you've got a Bible with you, you can have a look at Hebrews 4.15, or, or you can write it down. It's not on the screen. This is what the writer of Hebrews said. Talking about Jesus, 4.15, that Jesus was someone who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Did you get that? You see, Jesus actually identifies with our humanity because he's 100% human. But unlike the first man in the Bible who rejected God, Jesus is sinless. He doesn't reject God. It, this kind of sounds like a small thing. 
This is absolutely remarkable. And this is why Mark highlights for us that Jesus is a revolutionary man. But he's not just a revolutionary man. We see here as well that he is also a revolutionary son. Now Mark flags that for us in the opening sentence, doesn't he? He says, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, this person that jumps into the wilderness and identifies it with us is none other than God's Son. Put your eyes back up a little bit. Have a look at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is absolutely phenomenal. What Mark is saying here is that the heavens absolutely tore open and we hear the voice of God himself declaring that Jesus is his son. See, it's one thing me saying it, it's another thing Mark saying it, but to actually have insight into the fact that God himself declares Jesus as his son, that's pretty remarkable. Another core aspect of Christianity is that we believe in a God who is a trinity. We actually sung about it earlier, if you didn't notice in the first song. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Three persons, one God. That's actually been the story of Christianity for many, many years. This is exactly what Christians believe about God. <laughs> so here's what that means. That means that when Mark's highlighting for us here that Jesus is the Son of God, he's kind of actually saying that he's God. He's kind of actually saying that this is God himself. Jesus is 100% man, but in some kind of mind-boggling way, he's also 100% God. Jesus is the revolutionary man because he is the revolutionary son. You know, this is actually one of the differences between Christianity and many other religions. You see, Christianity claims that God Himself, that Jesus broke into our world and became a man. That God Himself stepped off His throne in heaven and actually entered into the trenches of our world. This shows us that God isn't just someone who sits up in an ivory tower and watches his people walk through the wilderness. This means that God isn't just someone who sets off the world into motion, 
lets his hands free of it and just doesn't care. This actually shows us that God cares. In fact, that he cares so much that he chose to become one of us. That he chose to actually come into this world. That's huge. That's massive. And this was always God's plan. You see, it was actually always God's plan that his son Jesus would come. If you have a Bible, uh, have a look at 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. If you don't, my apologies, it's, it's not up on the screen. I didn't have time to do it. But listen, listen along. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 7 when God is speaking to the great King David. If, if you've never read the Bible before, the, the song Hallelujah, and it's a song that sings about David. He was a king in the history of Israel. He was one of the great kings and who brought peace and prosperity to the people of Israel, to the Jews. And then God's speaking to him here in 2 Samuel. And, and this is what he says. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. <coughs> Do you get it? Can you hear the link? You see, actually in the Bible, there are many people that have been called the Son of God in one sense. Actually, all of the kings that would have been descended from David in many ways were called God's Son. Israel, the people of Israel were called God's Son. But, and we have to get this right, in 2 Samuel, God is pointing to the time where his son will come and sit on a throne, where Jesus himself will be declared as his son. This has never been plan B. This has always been in the plan of God, and Jesus actually fulfills what's spoken here. This is why Mark, if you actually read it, will continue to show you all of these things that Jesus does that, that actually only God really should be doing. Things like forgiving sin. And people kind of kick off at him because he declares that he had forgiven a man's sin. They know that only God can do something like that. Things like being able to stop storms and having power over the elements and the weather. Because he was there from the beginning and they knew his voice. Actually, things like raising people from the dead. Because he is the one who gives life. Mark is absolutely at pains to show you that Jesus is a revolutionary son, that he is actually God himself. 
But it wasn't that he was going to establish a kingdom here on earth. Because his kingdom was actually cosmic. It was actually far bigger than the kingdom of Rome. It wasn't that he would be a king who would put on a gold throw a gold crown. But he was actually a king who would come and put on a crown of thorns. He was God's son who broke into the world for us. He wasn't coming to conquer the Romans. He wasn't coming to free us from economic strife. He wasn't coming for any of that. He was coming to free us and conquer death and sin. And this is why Jesus was actually a revolutionary <coughs> Messiah. See, Jesus would be someone who, unlike Che Guevara, if you're familiar with that image of the, the Cuban uh, revolutionary leader, he went and he fought for his people. Jesus is far more radical than that, right? He comes and he dies for his people. He is a revolutionary Messiah who dies for his people. And you see, when Mark quotes here Isaiah in verses 2 and 3, that's who he's quoting. If you have a look, he said, this is written in the prophet Isaiah. He's kind of pointing us to something that we don't naturally get, but the people who would have read this and back in the day, that they would have picked it up straight away. They're kind of hearing tones of something that was written about this man Jesus 700 odd years before he ever walked the earth. And it's this, Isaiah 42 verse 1. This is God speaking again. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Or, or maybe we could... Listen in and hear whom I am well pleased, with whom I am well pleased. Do you hear that? The one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. I mean, we've just read about Jesus where the heavens have torn open, haven't we? And we hear God's voice declaring that Jesus is his son. But we also hear that the spirit came like a dove and rested upon him. Mark is showing us here that this is talking about Jesus. That he is a servant. And one of the things that we learn here about the servant in Isaiah and you guys will have to maybe go away and dig into this a little bit more. Ask the person who brought you along. But we see that the servant ends up being someone who will suffer for us. That this servant's crown will not be marked with gold. That it will be marked with thorns. That this servant's crown will not be marked with people cheering at him, rejoicing because he sits on his throne. But it will be marked with people who are crying out for him to be crucified. You see, in Isaiah, we're told that this servant, that this Messiah would be crushed for sin. Now, there's a story that... Um, that has been going around for a, a long time. It's based back in the 1920s, 1930s, about a man named John Griffith. And, and he lives in Mississippi. I've still got no idea how to spell that. But um, he was a, a bridge 
conductor over the Mississippi River. And um, he was responsible basically for ensuring that the bridge went up so that the boats would go through and that the bridge would come back down again so that the train would go across the bridge. John had a, an eight-year-old son who completely loved his father. He loved what he did. He was into engines and gears. And he just loved going along with his father and watching him uh, lift the drawbridge up so that the boats could go through and pop it back down again so he could watch the train and going along the tracks, taking passenger after passenger. And one day when he was with his father and watching all of the things that were going on, he had a come-to-work day with his dad. They decided that they would go down onto the bridge and sit and have their lunch. But as they were doing that, John got this sudden fright because he heard in the distance, he heard in the distance that the train was coming. See, so he got up and he ran up to the tar that he was in. And as he was up in the tar about to pull the lever so that the bridge would come back down and the train would safely pass, he realized that his son had climbed into the shaft to have a closer look at the gears that would grind and grind and grind as this bridge came to one piece. And he realized as he looked out of his window that his son had actually fallen. He had got trapped and stuck. And John, as he was looking at this train, packed with over 300 people coming hurtling along the track, had to make a decision. He knew that he couldn't get down there and he couldn't rescue his son in time and also close the bridge off to save those 300 people. He knew that he couldn't save those 300 people and save his son at the same time. And the train was getting closer and closer and closer. So his heart full of anguish, his stomach just doubled in two with complete sickness. John pulled that lever. His son was crushed and the train just went blazing past. Nobody knew. They had no idea that they were even in danger. They had no idea that John's son was sacrificed so that they could go free. That's a powerful story, isn't it? It's a sad story. And, and you know, amidst that, I love the fact that it highlights for us this idea of sacrifice that sets people free. <coughs> but does this really paint the picture of what happens with Jesus' sacrifice as the servant? Does it? Does this really kind of do justice to what we read in Mark's Gospel about the cross, if you've read it before? You see, where this is a really powerful story, 
I actually think it completely misses the mark. I actually think that if we have this idea of this revolutionary Messiah, this servant who will come and will suffer on a cross, if our picture's like that, then we're getting something wrong. If that's how you view the Christian message, then it's not the way that Mark presents it for us. You see, the references about Isaiah in this passage really just tell us that this wasn't some kind of accident. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 42, all of these things kind of show us that this was something that was planned from the beginning. It wasn't an accident that, that Jesus just happened to fall onto the cross and die for us. No. This was actually always God's plan. In fact, Jesus, if we were going to follow this story and we're going to fit it in with the Gospel of Mark, it's more like Jesus actually willingly climbs into that shaft for us. It's not an accident. He's not forced to go in. Jesus actually knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what it is that he was there for. And that was that he would be a revolutionary Messiah. Who would be crushed for sin. Who would go and die a death on a cross for us. You see, Mark tells us here that Jesus was 100% man. He identifies with us in the wilderness. He was also 100% sinless, but he also wants us to get that Jesus was 100% God. And it's precisely because of that that he could be the revolutionary Messiah. Let me read one more Bible passage, and two more, but one more for you just to finish up. It's in Hebrews 2. And it tells us, it talks about Jesus sharing in our humanity. And this is what it says. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That he might free those all their, who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. He had to be human. I'm paraphrasing here. Sorry guys. I just want to get through it. But he had, he had to be like them. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become merciful that he might make an atonement for the sins of people. Do, do you see that? You see, this is why God had to be fully man and fully God. This is why Mark is underlying these things for us. And we read in Mark 15 at the end, when Jesus is on the cross, this is what we read. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, this is what he said, surely, 
this was the Son of God. He gets it. Now, to finish up, what does all this matter? Does that actually mean anything for us? I think it matters, guys, because if this is true, if this is true, then Jesus is someone who is God himself as he breaks into our world. He actually identifies with all of the pain and the suffering and the anguish and the wildernesses that we walk through in this world. He actually understands the human experience. If this is true, then Jesus doesn't just understand the human experience, right? He walks with us through it. If this is true, that then actually God himself has making himself known to you today through Jesus. He actually and has come to rescue you. Not from ISIS, not from poverty, not from economic stress, not from any of that, but from sin. And if this is true, then Jesus, God's Son, went through the abandonment on the cross for our sin. He actually took the punishment that we deserve for us. Jesus, God's Son, actually jumped into the shaft for you, for me, for each one of us, so that we don't have to pay the price. That's why the Gospel of Mark is good news. That's why the Gospel of Mark is the place where we'll revolutionize our view of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? It, was he just a man? Or was he a revolutionary man? Was he just another son of God, another king that had come to revolutionize the known world and overthrow the Roman government? Or was he actually God's son? Or was he actually God himself? Was he just a Messiah? Or was he a revolutionary Messiah who had come to save us from our sin. I'm going to pray. And Father God, I just um, thank you that you sent your Son into this world to identify with us. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to be a revolutionary Messiah. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to continue to engage with that and see the weight of that in our lives. Amen. Let's stand and see.